The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Western Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandwestern.com.au and get your first episode produced for free. I'm Paul Dunn, and welcome to The Creative Relay, the podcast where Australia's most inspiring creatives talk to the creatives that most inspire them. Brought to you by Smith & Weston. This time, we're back with Nathan Lennon and Dave Gibson from Hawke's Brewing Company and their special guest. Before we begin, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Nathan and Dave, very good to have you back. Thank you for having us back. Uh, Pleasure. It's part of the deal. We were (laughs) obligated to do that. So tell us all then uh, who you've got lined up. Um, Yeah, sure. So our guest today is a, um, we like to think he's a good mate. Um, He's also our former boss um, when we were at Mojo in Sydney. And, you know, he's been a a massive creative inspiration to us um, over the years. Um, And it's Michael Walker. Um, He's just recently returned from... Uh, seven year ish, I guess. Um, seven years at Wyden Kennedy in Portland. Um, prior to that, he was in Sydney as a creative partner at the Monkees. Um, and then prior to that, he was uh, ECD at Mojo in Sydney. Um, as I said, where he was our our creative director. And then prior to that, he was he was also creative director and partner at Fallon in London. So he's definitely had a uh, a hell of a career, and um, it's it's really good to kind of have him back in town, and and I think that was obviously the impetus to to getting him in. He's um, you know, he's literally just come back to set up seventy two and sunny, um, over here, and I guess we just really wanted to talk to Micah for many reasons. Obviously, having worked in a lot of the similar markets, um, Sydney here and and London and and the states, there's a there's a lot of common ground with us. Interestingly, there's a there's another little bit of common ground in the sense that um, Mike has also launched his own brand and product outside of advertising. So we will sort of want to talk about that journey. Um, and then for those that don't know, Mike is, I guess, a bit of a mystery. And I guess for as long as we've known him, he's sort of in many ways still remains a bit of a mystery to us. So this is an opportunity for us to like dive a little deeper. Get it all out. Well, he's not only back in town, but he's uh, back here. So let's get him in the room, shall we? Right, let's do it. Micah, welcome. Thank you. Were you listening to uh, Nathan's introduction? Yeah, it was very nice. It was. Did I get it, did I get it right? Or? Yeah, I've only been away five years, not seven, but otherwise all good. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, welcome back, mate. So, mate, it's been five years, not seven. Um in between beers with us. And I guess, firstly, we've got a lot of stuff we want to ask you and chat about. But the the first thing up is you'd been back to Australia a few times in between um, leaving. And what was the the decision this time to to go when you last went overseas? Um, Look, I think I've always tried to give advice to people to say that in life and also like as a creative person, it's like if you're just not feeling happy, then, you know, make a change. And... 
I think for us, even though we had two kind of young girls, we'd come to a point to where we just didn't want that to be the last thing that we were doing. And I say my wife and I both because we both felt that way. And uh, so, you know, it was nothing against anyone at the Monkees or anything like that. It was it was more just a personal thing. And and so I, you know, I just wanted to set off on a bit of an adventure. And then originally what I was going to do was go run a couple offices for Anomaly out of London and Amsterdam. And I was excited. And my wife kind of burst into tears. I was like, oh, no, I don't want to. I don't want to go back to London. Um, so that was a little odd. And then Wyden and I had been chatting on and off over the years. Never felt like there was really the right kind of job. Wasn't really dying to go back to the U.S. Um, and uh, But there were some people I knew there. Some some of our old department was there and Ruth and Justine and uh, Joe Staples, who I knew really well from back in the day, was there. And they were like, just come out, you know, just come out and visit and see if it feels nice and we'll work out titles and job descriptions later. Uh, and so we were like, okay, yeah, yeah. So I went out and spent some time there. And uh, look, it just felt like something we hadn't done. It felt like a place we hadn't lived uh, for an agency that, of course, we all know, but that I didn't really know. Uh and then I had a really bizarre interview with Dan Wyden that kind of, I was like, oh, fuck, I have to do it, right? Uh, so I called my wife, and she was like, is it us? Is it? Does it feel like? And I was like, no, <laughs> it's not us. Uh, but that's kind of why we did it. Uh, so, yeah, it was more that, like, I think if you get to a point where you feel like you've stopped growing, if you get to a point to where you feel... Like just the day-to-day victories aren't enough, mm-hmm. then make a change, you know, do something different. And I know it sounds a little cliche to say you're your most important creative project, but I think that's a bit true, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So you just want to keep growing, learning, doing different things, and then at a certain point challenging yourself. And it's kind of why I left and also why I came back, you know. So the feeling, the feeling that it wasn't you – or that it wasn't us was a big impetus as to why you went. Was it was it just the conversation with Dan, or or was it? Well, no, that wouldn't be fair to say that. Although <laughs> that was like pretty profound. Um, but no, it was everything else. They were really nice. Obviously, uh, it was a very different way of living. Like you know, Portland's kind of a town, really. Um, it's an incredibly impressive place, uh, full of wonderful people, and. Uh, so it wasn't just the Dan thing. It was the opportunity. And I kind of, I was in two minds. Like at one hand, it was like, I, I need to build the thing that I want. Like that, that was, if I'm not going to find it, I need to kind of start it and cultivate it and build it. Or, you know what? I just want to go join something where the momentum is already there and just focus on kind of doing my part. You know, I hate to admit that I was probably the, the ones, you know, the first was the former was probably just a little too scary. And, 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 and I wasn't sure if this was the right place to do it. Uh, and so I kind of leaned on the other, but yeah, I mean, I think that was it. I wanted to do something different. That was something different. So the first being setting your own thing up. Yeah, that was the first. Like I was, I went through that whole struggle. To be fair, I did that after Mojo. Um, and that was, uh, I just couldn't, 
you know, it's a weird thing when you start thinking about that. You start meeting potential partners. You start talking with people about financial backing or no financial backing. You go through all these conversations, and I did, went through a lot of them. Uh, and some of them we got very close on. But I just couldn't ever get to the point to where I was like, absolutely, this is the right thing to do right now with these people. Uh, and I was probably a little bit afraid to do it totally on my own, you know. I think that's but, the thing about getting the opportunity to go and do something on the other side of the world. It, it sort of, it adds or it compounds the the scariness around it or the, or the feeling of challenge. Like I, I, the fact that you've bounced back and forth several times. This is your third time in Australia, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny. Australia's, Sydney is the only place I've ever moved back to. So all my life. I've always kind of moved on and then moved on and then moved on. And, you know, when I last lived in the, in the U.S., I lived in New York and I left and kind of spent most of my adult life outside the U.S. So I, I don't know what that is. I mean, I've, I have my kids here. My wife's Australian, so there's those obvious things. But it might be weird for me to say is I'm not really Australian, but, but it does feel like home. And, and I like it here and I feel welcome and uh, it suits me. Yeah. Well, that's a nice little segue, I guess, to our next point of questioning. Like, obviously, you don't sound Australian. Yeah, because um, I'm fucking is... not. <laughs> oh, that sounded Australian. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got a weird, like, it's funny. My, my, I know that I don't sound very nice because I've, I've often had people go, oh, we should put your voice on something. And I go, no, we shouldn't really. <laughs> and then they're like, no, no, we should. And then, and then I record it and they're like, yeah, we're not going to use it. <laughs> but, um, it's funny because it's it's I don't know what I sound like, uh, but but I do get people going like where what uh, where are you from and like what you definitely have some kind of weird thing. Um, so tell us going right back. Tell us about little Micah. You know, like little Micah. Little Micah. I think we all probably remember the moment or the or the situation that that kind of triggered that feeling that we wanted to take on the careers that we did, um, and. They're all different reasons. I mean, was yours influenced out of your your upbringing in America? Like, how did it all how did it all happen? Huh. I'm not I'm not sure exactly. Other than I kind of feel like I've always it was inevitable, and yet I don't think there was a turnkey moment. I was a uh, I was single mom, single child. So just me and her. She was very young. She moved around a lot, and so I followed. Right. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time on my own, obviously, because I didn't have any siblings. Um, and so that time was spent really kind of doing one of two things. I was either doing some type of art and drawing or I was playing sport. And it was like, that was it. I, that was, you know, before I hit puberty, those were the only things that mattered. I went to three high schools in three different states, all of them incredibly different. Like they could not have been more different. And then there was a school that I really wanted to go to on the border of Colorado and Kansas, which was a great design school. And there was one instructor there that I wanted to go learn from. It was a great school, and there was nothing to do there at all. Um, so it was like super in the middle of nowhere, except study and do work and design. And and uh, so that was one of the best decisions I ever made, to be honest. It was super informative. Uh, we just worked. We really worked hard. And I stayed uh, kind of halfway through my master's and then kind of accidentally ended up getting a job in advertising over a summer. But that was, 
you know, I don't know that there was ever a moment, but, you know, there were, it was kind of my natural inclination was that there were, you know, simple two things that interested me until girls came around. And then university was really great because I had to work for it. And then you had to work hard. And then I ended up getting a job on an accident on a trip to Chicago. What was that first job? First job, it was weird. I went to Chicago with a girlfriend. She was like, I, you know, I, I have an uncle who works at this company that I'd never heard of. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, you should show him your work, you know? So I took my work in, showed it to him. And he was like, wow, you know, where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. And he was like, look, you should meet this other guy. And he kind of put me in and I said, wait outside. This will be like an hour at the most. And it ended up being like two and a half hours. And I met with a guy who had like vice president on his tag. And I was like, holy shit, you know, I'm meeting the vice president in this giant, you know, company that I wasn't sure what they did. And, uh, I realized later there were like 50 vice presidents in that company, but I just thought there was the one. And, uh, yeah, he offered me a job for what I thought was like so much money and maybe a little cheeky. He was like, I will pay you $25,000. And I was like, whoa. And so I was like, I will take 30. And, uh, he was laughed and was like, you don't, you, you, you don't, you can't negotiate. You're, you're like, you're a student. And I was like, well, I'll, I'll do 30. And, uh, and they, and they gave me 30. So, uh, but that was Leo Burnett and, uh, it was in that big monolithic building and it was weird. And, uh, I spent a little bit of time there first, just kind of going, all right, what is this advertising business? Cause de design for me was just a different world. Um, you know, it took me a while to be there. Like for a while I was like, I don't like advertising. This sucks, man. You know? Uh, for all kinds of reasons, you know, they don't get your ideas. Then you got to like, you know, too many people involved, uh, feels like it's never about the work, all these different things. And then I just realized maybe I was just at the wrong company. So then I kind of started going, okay, well, I'll find somewhere else to go. And, uh, funnily enough, at that time, I, I kind of received two offers, one to go to New York and one to go to Fallon in Minneapolis. And I remember going, well, I just want to do like more TV. And the New York uh, agency was like, we will give you so much TV. So I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm going there. And then they give me shit. So, and it was worse. <laughs> so it was like, oh man. Uh, but, uh, <clears throat> but the funny thing was, uh, you know, I don't want to be too disparaging about Leo Burnett, uh, because there were a couple individuals within that company that, that, that I genuinely loved. And, I was super young and I remember when, when I decided I was finally going to quit. Uh, I, on, I think it was the, like the 22nd floor was like where all the like, you know, people 30 levels above me were like the global management. I was like, yeah, I should go tell them I'm going to quit. Right. So I went down, set up an appointment with, uh, uh, Michael Conrad at the time, who was like, even at that time was like 70 years old or something. Um, and uh have this meeting and he kind of looks at me like hmm you know what are you doing here and i was like well i just come to tell you that you know i'm leaving the company and my call and uh he kind of giggled and he's like well, well why, why didn't you tell like your boss or like your boss's boss or and i was like well i just you know i thought it'd be important to come down and let you <laughs> and he was just looking at me like who the fuck is this guy and uh <laughs> But the funny thing was that I was like, you know, and he was like, well, 
tell me why you're leaving. And so I gave him this whole, like, you know, it's not about the work. I have all these issues. And he was like, well, I'm sad to see you go, but, you know, thanks for, you know. So it ended well like that. Then when I went to New York, and I fucking hated the job in New York. Like, I hated the job in New York. And I was like, advertising is the fucking worst. I hate it. So then I was like, I'm not going to do advertising anymore. I get a call. And this is pre-mobile phones, right? So I get a ding, ding, ding on one of my lit up phones that look like a computer, old computer on the desk. I pick it up and she's like, I have Michael Conrad on the phone for you. So this was like maybe a year and a half after I'd been in New York. And I'm like, oh, uh, you know, so it's that old fella. And uh pick it up and he's like, Micah, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, don't, I'm not doing great. I don't really like it here. And he's like, great. Do you have a vacation? And I was like, I, I do. I have got like two weeks coming up. He's like, great. I'm going to send you tickets. Uh And I was, you know, of course, I was like, where, where? Are you going to send me tickets, you know? And he's like, I want you to go to Hong Kong and do a regional creative director role. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I don't, I don't think, I think I'm too young to do, like, I'm not sure I could do that. And he was like, nonsense, just get and go, right? And got the tickets, flew to Hong Kong, put me up in a hotel that was like, you know, super extravagant, uh, for me. And I was blown away and I was just like, holy shit. And, but I don't want to work for Leah Burnett, but, oh, but Michael's good. And so in the end, I just went, you know what? Fuck it. As a life experience, I got to do this. Um, and, and the job was basically two weeks in Hong Kong, two weeks in KL, two weeks in Hong Kong, two weeks in Manila, two weeks. in. and so it was really interesting, uh, as a, you know, as a person, just to be able to kind of experience that and see the world. And again, I didn't put anything in my book for the two years that I was in Hong Kong. And so I was like, I fucking hate advertising, man. It's fucking shit. <clears throat> and a uh, lot of, lot of really lovely experiences, you know, and some, and some nice people, but it was just like, this is a machine that I don't get. I don't like how it works. So I'm like, I'm fucking, I'm getting out of advertising. So I call Michael again and I'm like, I'm getting out. I'm just at Leo Burnett's not the right company for me. And he's like, Micah, I've got this thing. And I'm like, oh, and he's like, what about Warsaw? And I was like, fucking no way. I'm not going to Warsaw. I'm I'm not going to Russia, I remember saying. And he's like, Poland, but yeah, we're going to. And I was like, no, I can't. I can't. No way. And he's like, look, gave me the spiel. We're going to build a kind of, you know, uh, a real strong agency there. There is something there, but we're going to turn it into something better. And. There are three other people that I'm bringing in to do it. And, and I was like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not doing it. And he named the three and I knew them and two of them were mates. And I was like, oh, so I was like, all right, I'll go, I'll go. That sounds interesting. And, uh, and I actually had a really good time there and, you know, still single at that stage. So that was kind of fun being with your mates and, when the work was bad, it was so bad. And I had some really bizarre experiences there. Uh, but you know, we kind of won lions every year, started, you know, doing some nice work in Ikea, started doing some really nice work on Fiat. There was a local beer brand that had done some really good work. Sony did some PlayStation stuff. Um, but like I say, you know, the level was 
was low, but it was productive and we were making stuff and we were fucking stuff up, like, you know, genuinely fucking stuff up, not in the like, you know, hero sense. It was like, we'd mess something up so bad, but we learned a lot. Mm. I don't think a lot of people get to do that these mm -hmm. days. You know, it's, yeah. you learn a lot from the mistakes you make and we made a lot of them. Uh, but really, you know, as, as you guys know, people kind of remember the good stuff and, and that was really great. And I was the last of all of them to leave. Like m most of the people kind of come in, got a few awards and then, and then bagged off. And I had a little bit more of a fondness for the people there. And I knew that they were worried about us all leaving because, you know, we just played by a different set of rules and, you know, I I'm sure that annoyed some of them, but at the same time, it was also kind of fun to feel like we were giving them permission to do shit and say shit that that they wouldn't have normally done. And we elevated the standard of the work. So it was a little bit of a tough place to leave. But when I was ready to go, I was like, all right, I am not working for Leo Burnett ever again, right? I'm done. That wasn't a bad experience necessarily, but I knew enough then about the industry to go, that's not was, where I'm Was going. this the first time, though, that you weren't against advertising? Because everywhere else you seem to be like, that's it. I'm never going to work in advertising you know what? again. It, I think it was. Yeah, right. It was the first time where it was a little bit more Wild West, I, cliche, but like it was it, it was kind of what we made of it. Mm -hmm. And so less systematic, less regionally controlled, less maybe financially critical. <laughs> to, so it allowed to, you to, to, to experiment and make mistakes. and Yeah, and I also just think the nature, like at that time, Poland's economy was, was growing a lot, like, you know, it was an interesting place. Um, um and so, yeah, that kind of more freewheeling way of working was, um, was again, and you know, as I wax on even more, I'll tell you more about how I developed that at other places. But, um, it was, it was, you know, I think it was just a moment to be productive and we were on our own. So we were kind of making it up as we went and, uh, and that was fun. And, you know, and we were seeing, you know, we were, getting recognized it can and so it was you know it was the first time that it felt like oh okay this you know maybe not this exactly but something like this this could work and again i was like look i'm gonna leave and they're like well we'd really like you to find another home and i was in the in the network and i was like oh it's just the wrong company guys and uh they're like what about sydney i was like oh no because i'd always i'd always wanted to live in australia I'd visited once before and loved it. And so then I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, all right. I'll do it. And kind of came over as a, I can't remember what my title was, but not as the one in charge. And then after about a year and a half, I believe, or something like that, I was given the ECD role and kind of very proud of a little, you know, network agencies tend to kind of run in hills, right? They go up and then they go down and then, Creativity gets great and then they want the money and then, you know, so they ebb and flow and they all kind of do it. And I was there when they'd had a creative lull. And so it was like, come make the work better. And that's when I kind of met my wife uh, and met some some really dear friends that are still friends today. Um, Greg Logan was there and Greg and his husband, Paul, were the kind of godparents to my daughters. Um and then I won't get into the detail of why that was tricky, but it ended and I learned a big lesson about politics and, and 
you know, takeovers and complicated shit that really creative people shouldn't have to worry about. But again, learned something. And after that was when I was like, okay, I'm not going to work for Lee overnight anymore. I'd always said to people, like, if your book is good enough, you can go anywhere. Just, you know, that was always the advice I gave. And so when I went to London, I actually went to London with my book without a job and just started going, all right, you know, even if you've been in ECD, I'm just going to just meet everybody and show them my work and see what they think. And ended up taking some freelance work at Fallon. Kind of did a really tough stint of three months where we did about seven days a week, 16 hours a day kind of stuff. And right as I was like, man, I don't know if I can, this is a crazy pace. They offered me a full-time job. That was really probably the the moment where everything aligned. It wasn't that they were already doing everything that was important and that mattered to me, but it, but it was just a place where that was possible. And I think uh, Richard and Andy were incredible. By the time I got there, they didn't really talk anymore, which was interesting. They kind of sat in an office looking at each other and didn't speak. But they were both very different. You know, I think they when they started Fallon with the other partners, they'd just come off the back of like, I don't know, like nine DNAD wins. And, like you know, they were really kind of the hottest team in the world. And I just liked them. And there was, you know, there's probably about 60 people there. And uh, my wife then ended up getting a job there, which was a little bit, she wasn't my wife yet. And it was, you know, kind of four years, four and a half years of the most creatively rewarding, experimental, defining years I've had in the industry. And a lot of what I still believe today was cemented there. And, you know, it was just a really unique moment in time to kind of hit a wave where everybody was on the same, everyone was on the same wavelength. Like it was... Because often, you know, someone wants to retire, someone wants an award, someone wants money. This was a moment where everybody was just going, we want to be a more interesting, different, great creative company. And that was the sole motivation. Like if you were shit, you, you were found out quick. And so it was just this single mission. But the coolest part was that you were always working on really varied things. And that's where design... My background and all those kind of worlds kind of come back together. I think London's also a really wonderful place for that. The creative communities are much, much more intertwined. You know, there's not this kind of, ooh, you're in advertising. So you can be working on art projects at the same time you're working on design projects or packaging design and a music video and an advertising campaign. And that's kind of what, what it was like for me. Uh, and I also got to work on some brands that I just really loved. And then I became a partner there, which was great. And when my wife and I, or she got pregnant, she was like, I, I just can't do it anymore. You know, it was a sprint for four and a half years there. We just worked so hard and joked that we didn't really live in London. We lived in Fallon. And so she's like, I want to go home to have the kids, you know. So we both left and it was, that was the hardest job I've ever left. Uh, you know, I cared about that place so much, you know. And everybody that was there. And I saw it grow a lot. I saw it change. I saw the problems, but still, you know, cared about it. And that's when I came back uh, to do Mojo. Yeah, we were there at that moment pretty much. I remember. I think we just left London ourselves. You're right. That's when Fallon were doing the work that everybody loved, but yeah. the, but we loved as well. And yeah, definitely remember you coming back um, and us essentially freelancing for a little bit with you. And I remember thinking this guy's on a mission <laughs> probably out of 
I don't know if homesick is the uh, the right word for it, but you could tell that what you had spent your life looking for through all the travel, through all the things that you loved about advertising when you didn't want to leave it, culture, freedom, creative freedom, all those sorts of things that sort of added up to the perfect place at yeah. the time, Fallon. You really wanted that for Mojo at the time. And yeah. so that was a pretty interesting sort of moment to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, the funniest thing, right? Like, I actually, we actually did more award winning work at Mojo than I did at Fallon, which was weird. But what I got to do at Fallon was experiment and to fight and believe and to feel good about having convictions and about being smarter and about working harder and about not being predictable. That was a really important part. Like one of the worst things that you would get from Rich, uh, who is, I've worked with a lot of people that I admire, a lot of people that I respect, but he was the only person that I'd ever worked for that I genuinely looked up to. Like it hurt if he didn't like my work, you know. But coming back to Mojo, I think, you know, in hindsight, I know that that wasn't ever going to be possible, but, but I wanted it and I wanted to, I wanted to bring those beliefs in and go, look, if we work harder and we bring the right people together and we create an environment where the standard is high and the fear level is low. What then, did you think was the biggest barrier to doing that? Well, uh, there's the kind of real truth and then there's kind of what maybe I should say. Look, I think Mojo was, um, even though it had a history and there were some people there doing interesting work, I, it was a really genuinely strange company. Mm. There were people that were there fighting for something that they'd been a part of for a long time that had nothing to do with the work. It was more about who was important and, you know, I don't want to badmouth anybody. No, no, no. But uh, Graham Wills and I got on very well. He just desperately wanted that place to be doing great work and they just weren't. And a lot of that had to do with what was going on inside that company. But I kind of took permission from him and went, look, just if you, if you let me build the creative department uh, the way that it should be built and we get in the right people and you give me opportunities, then I'll give you that work. I'll, you know, it, we will make great work. You know, in hindsight, it feels like a quick moment. I think at the time it felt really, it was incredibly difficult. A lot of politics, a lot of just shit that gets in the way. But one of the things I'm most proud of to this day is that we built a creative department with really wonderful, talented, interesting people. And we never had more than five teams. Dave and Nathan were there. But it was just this real tribe of people who, uh, you know, if I could ever pat my back on anything, it would be that I hired good people. Mm. And, and they all cared in a way above and beyond an award show. It was like people were committed there to learn and to help one another and to really do different work. Um, and so despite the issues going on in the agency, a tribe of people like that can actually make a really significant difference. And it wasn't easy by any stretch. But when we did get a couple clients that were willing to treat us as partners and to let us care too much, then we made some work that I'm so proud of. The best part of it was all of those people have gone on to do really wonderful and interesting things, and they're all still dear friends of mine. Except Dave. <laughs> Just on while we're on Mojo and the work there, the beer advertising that, that, that Mojo was putting out, Pure Waters for Bogues and um, Hans Super Dry, Super yeah. In, Super Out, highly awarded work and amazingly 
great stuff. I think you'd made a comment the other day about Australian beer ad- advertising now. Yep. What do you think is going on there? What's your feeling about that? Because it's obviously close to our heart. Look, it's tough. I think beer advertising across the world is pretty awful at the moment. And I, and I think, you know, sometimes sometimes these things happen not for creative reasons, you know. I, I think we're, we'd be naive to think that large companies buying up the smaller companies and then making broad decisions about how they work their brands and how they how they create advertising and looking for large scale efficiencies has an effect on creativity and i know that's certainly the case um and so i i can't pretend to understand exactly why every single company makes the decisions they make but i think broadly you know that's one thing I think the other thing is that, you know, what we drink has become more diverse and there's more beers. And so, uh, you know, there's more other liquids. Like you walk into a supermarket in the U.S. and it's like there's two aisles of just soda. All of that innovation has just meant more and more and more and more stuff. Uh, And you don't see as many kind of brands that are consistently doing really great work. Um, You know, you might see the odd campaign from a beer in Brazil that's replaced the tooth of a a guy with a beer opener and they win something, but not consistent, enduring thoughts. And, you know, I think we've also seen the end of some really wonderful, you know, Guinness is a really good example. I think Guinness was, you know, had such an effect on everybody for so long making the films they were making with incredible writing, uh, really beautiful storytelling, you know, kind of industry-changing, iconic work. Uh, and then I think, you know, they were bought, and all of a sudden they wanted to be not uh, not a sometimes beer, but an all-the-time beer, and then that meant they needed to appeal to a larger audience, and then it meant, you know... So whatever, you know, those decisions get made by for, for so many different reasons. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's just one single thing. I think there's a lot of different things that have affected it. Why it's this way here, I just don't know. Um, I think uh, there's still some great, great beer brands here. You know, Ant and the boys down in Melbourne have done some really brilliant work for Carlton over the years. I'm not quite sure why they seem to not be doing as much, or maybe I just don't know, and, and they are. But, uh, you know, they've done great work. I think Bogues is still, I mean, I still drink. It's great beer. I love it. Uh, I thought we gave them an idea that they could have run with for mm. 50 years. Yeah. That's really interesting, I reckon, your point about the enduring ideas. Yeah. And it's not just beer, is it? You actually see it kind of across the board that no one seems to be interested in that really kind of enduring thought that can just go with a brand for years and years and years. Yeah, and I think it's like what's really sad to me is that I think the industry's become far too executional. We could argue the reasons why this is, but not a lot of time spent on the thinking before everybody just gets starting making and executing. Show me a script, not an idea, because uh, I want to know what I'm going to make. And I think that's kind of a sad thing because I think truly enduring thoughts, big, big ideas. I'm not sure you know you have them the second you do. Like, I don't think you're like, this one's it. Oh, this. But I think, you know, after you make a couple of things, you start to understand that like, wow, it's an idea, but it's also a platform for kind of never ending storytelling and it's ownable and it's tied very much to, you know, something true about a brand. And I think those are harder and harder to find, you know, and what ends up happening is that executional details all of a sudden start to be, you know, the things that people talk about consistency with. And and that's just sad, you know. Nobody's going to ever really truly own a color. 
you know, maybe Coca-Cola with red, but, you know, oh, if you kind of decorate this this way and we keep doing that, then we have a consistent brand tone of voice. And that's just not, you know, people don't consume advertising that way. People don't uh, think about it that way. And that's just kind of marketing stuff. Um, and I, I also understand though, like on the marketing side, there are people that come in and go, I need to, I want to make a difference. I'm going to, I'm going to turn this this way. And I think, uh, you know, some of those decisions, uh, you have to kind of applaud, you know, because they've made a real difference and changed a brand for the better. And so I don't know how exactly you get back to that or if you ever do. I think we've also just become different in the way that we consume information. And that's maybe affected us a little bit too much as an industry. We've gotten a little insecure about, about what we're really there to do. You know, and people are like, let's make things the way we think we're meant to make them now versus what role do we really play? You know, are we here just to add to the mess of communication out there or are we actually here to do something significant and different for brands? So coming out of Widen, I guess, a place that at least the perception from everywhere else is that it's a it's a company that has conviction has yeah. has um I guess a set of principles that they're very proud of and obviously we always take the best of where we've been to the place that we go next moving into the role back here in Sydney why do you think you are right for this role I mean we, we've got a it's like an interview it uh, is fuck you Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've got a question whether you're right for this um, role, Mike. <laughs> My point is more just kind of jumping back to the other side of the pond. Like uh, Dave and I had discussed this before in terms of where to next yeah. in our journey in the States. I think had we not have been given our opportunity to do what we wanted to do, we'd probably still be there. Yeah. And then what? And then then what? And then what if we went? We wanted to come back to Australia and set something up ourselves or work back here. That's when we stopped and we're like, Oh God, that will that will actually be the hardest part for us. Yeah, like going back and trying to figure out. It was almost like almost a sense of lost in translation. Yeah, I think we put too much pressure on ourselves to have a plan, <laughs> and there's kind of a couple parts to that. Like, what am I bringing from Wyden that that I think makes it right? And then there's the kind of plan part of it. I think plans are a little bit overrated in that sense, right? Because I think ultimately, here's one of the things I believe, right? I, I believe that in the end, you want to work with people that you respect and you want to work with people that you like and that you want to have a sense that you're growing, right? And you want to be productive. I guess that's the other thing, right? And what I, what I think I've learned is... Uh, I used to kind of think there were brands I wanted to work on. In truth, what I've come to realize is that there are people within organizations that you want to work with because you can work on a great brand and have someone on the other side that doesn't want to be a partner and it's a miserable experience, you know. And But then you can work on a brand that you wouldn't have ever thought was going to be really great and there's one client or, you know, partner there for you and it becomes a really great experience. I think the same is true of in advertising. Like, in a way... We all want to feel like we're making a difference. And so we chase opportunities that, that allow us to kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, I've got credibility and I've made some good work. And But I think if that becomes the only thing, at least for me, it can get a bit strange. And I just want to work with people that I like. I, I've always kind of said I want to do interesting things with interesting people. And that's kind of my thing. 
So I think plans are a little overrated and, and, and the pressure to feel like that you need to have one is a little, uh, maybe a reality, but also kind of, you know, unfortunate. Is it nice to be able to come and do something with an agency that there aren't many like miles on the clock with that one in Australia? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a big part for me. And one of the things about coming back was always, you know, Widens is an incredibly special place. It's a very unique place. Um, it has its problems, you know, so I, I, you know, you know, I tell you everything that's wonderful about it, but like, you know, it has its own issues and every place does. That's just the reality. And it wasn't always easy. It's just that there's no place like that. But coming back, the thing that was important to me was, uh, A, that I could work with some people that I felt like I liked, um, you know, I've experienced <clears throat> some things that were kind of frustrating in the past that I didn't really want to ever have to deal with again, just basic human decency stuff. And then I wanted to come back to a place that I felt like I could actually make a really significant difference and, and that I could shape. I can't shape it wholly in my own image because it's not my company, uh, but that it would be okay for me to care too much. And so that was really important. So, you know, Chris, that's at 72, I knew from Fallon. When Chris and I had started talking and I started talking to a couple of the other people there, I met the guys in L.A. and, and got to, ha you know, have a chance to talk to them about what I believe, about what they believe. And then I felt like it was a really good thing. And they've been really super supportive of, you know, come back, understand. And, and you know, there's no blueprint for exactly how you have to do it. There are some values that we believe in as a company that I think it would be weird to disagree with, like they're kind of basic human decency stuff, and then a mission, and then how you get there is up to you guys. And so I needed to hear that, and that was really important. You know, that, coming home, the right time in my life, wanting to raise my kids here for the second part of their childhood, all those kinds of things. And I'm also just kind of excited to be back. I like people here, you know. They're people that I like to hang out with and maybe I was missing some of that in Portland. Do you look at it as kind of equal creative opportunities in Australia compared to perhaps if you'd gone back to London? Or? Well, London's going through a funny time, but I think there's about to be a real resurgence there. I just think it ebbs and flows and I think they went through that terrible financial thing and then all of a sudden Brexit and the uncertainty. I actually think they're about to have a creative renaissance uh, in the UK. Here, uh, I think we should do I mean, I think there's still an opportunity in the in the market to to have a genuinely unique, less predictable creative company. And, uh, you know, it's a smaller market. And I've always felt like there was genuine talent here, you know, and I know a lot of p folks leave and they should to go out and experience the world. But I think, you know, when you're forced to work within a smaller box, you know, sometimes the things that come out are, are more unexpected and special. Um I wouldn't say it's a peak advertising moment in Australia, uh, although I know they've kind of done well at awards and stuff like that. But I just think what's the real tenor of all the work? Um, you know, I think there have been better moments broadly, yeah. but I do think there's some really special work that's come out of here, work that I wish I did. You know, Meet Graham, uh, that Quems did was fucking great, and I loved it. And I wish I did it and kind of hate the people who did. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, there's been some other really lovely work uh, recently, the Palau Pledge stuff. Like, all that stuff's really good. I do think in mainstream brands, uh, there's a kind of 
beigeness to work that's on air at the moment. If you watch TV, cinema, those kinds of things. Yeah, it's annoying that we feel like we have to sort of hide ninety percent of the work and only lift up ten percent for the for the yeah. I guess the juries to see. You know, look, there's always been that thing. I you're Australian, you can explain it better than I. I've always just felt like being far away and being smaller kind of means you want to stand out and so then awards can become a little bit too important. But you know, it whatever it takes to raise the level and the standard for everybody, if that's awards or if that's some individuals or if that's a few brands that kind of go, you know what, we don't want to be like everybody else. Uh, all that stuff is good, you know. So, and I'm I'm one of those people that wants everybody to do good work. You know, I'm super competitive, but at the same time, I want everybody to do good work because that means there's, you know, it raises the level for everybody. But, you know, I think it feels, I can't say this for sure, but it feels a bit to me like in recent times, some of those award-winning projects have, have, have not been on, you know, bigger brands, and that's kind of a shame. It's not always down to the to the people that are behind the work. I mean, the people behind the work in terms of the agency, It's it's it, it cuts both ways. Like, the passion has to come from... From everybody, it has to come from the from the client. Yeah, it has to. I mean, I, I think what you're really looking for is partners, and I think as agencies, you know, we can't pretend like we know everything, like we're the, always fucking going to be the best and hit it out of the park. But I think you have to have beliefs and standards. You know, I don't, I don't think it's a risk-averse business. Like, I think the worst thing you could do for a client is create something and spend their money and nobody ever notices. You know, to me, that's just crazy and i know why it happens and i know you know sometimes people don't want to get in trouble more than they want to be great and that's just human nature i guess but i think finding the right people to do that and really kind of help change the dynamic project by project brand by brand day by day like that's uh that's what you hope for and if you can't control it throughout the industry then you try and control it in your own company i'm interested to know because i think when we've been working with you you're probably one of the only people we've worked with that you always bring something that someone hasn't thought of. Like you always think about things from a totally different area that I don't think many people get to. And I'm interested yeah. to know where do you where do you take that inspiration from outside of advertising? Is is there one particular thing? Is it everything? Is there one thing in your life or one person? Is it Richard that you really look to to, to get to another area that people aren't thinking of? I think some of that is just who you are. I spent a little while trying to be the creative director that I thought Rich was, and I realized I couldn't do it. You know, he was who he was, and I just couldn't work like that, and I couldn't be like that. And I admired him so much that I wanted to be. And then I think you find, you get out of a pattern of wanting to be correct, and you get into a pattern of kind of going, I can only be who I am. I'm not different at work than I am at home. I'm just, this is who I am. And so I've always just been one of those people that was a little bit more comfortable with one foot kind of left of center or often both feet and my whole body. But, you know, the peculiarity of the world is really interesting to me. And by that, I don't mean wacky. I mean the things that are not like other things. And so whether that's film, fashion, product, conversations, people, all those kinds of things, I think, inform. They just kind of go into the vast or not so vast mind and, and, and then they kind of pop out at random moments. What I think is really important, though, is I think if you're working with the right people or, or as a executive creative director, creative director, whatever, as a, as a creative leader or something, whatever that is, um, 
if you hire the right people, there's an organic flow that kind of happens. It's no system, but just banter and consistent kind of stimulation, which sounds weird, um, of just messing with one another, sharing stuff with one another, surprising one another, trying to make one another laugh, trying to show one another something beautiful, trying to kind of go, oh, think, have you thought about that? That, just that with the right people is kind of where the magic is. Even the strangest things I've ever sold had really rational reasons for why we got there. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was never, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had like, you know, a frog with a laser. It, it, they never start that way. You're like, here's a problem. First, we talk about the most logical ways that we think about moving away from it. And then we kind of let our mind work on expanding it out and kind of going, so here are five obvious ways we could solve this with a statement, even a simple sentence. Okay, but what if we then kind of take one leap back? And I don't know. So it's not quite that mathematical, but I think you do go through that rigor and I think good teams do it on their own. But then as an ECD or CD or whatever the right title is, it's your job to pick up on that and to play with it and to help kind of throw things at people and and be in an environment where people aren't afraid to say their shit ideas too. Mm-hmm. And be in an environment where when you say a shit idea, everybody can tell you it's shit. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remember so many times that we were all sitting in that little, like we were all squeezed into a tiny space at Mojo. And you were saying our work was shit. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone was laughing at us. (laughs) No, but it was like, you know, it's, it's again, you know, I look back on it so fondly because it was like, it was just banter and it was super productive. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's really kind of how it happens. I get, there's no system that we can put in place. There are principles that an agency can have, and a creative company can have to go, this is what we believe. And these are the things that we're going to push for and fight for. And we're going to set up plans and timelines to be able to kind of make sure that there's rigor. But the real magic of getting together and going through creative development, I think, is just a lot of hard work. And then that free flow magic thing, which is harder. You know, I've worked with really great teams that I didn't enjoy the creative process. Um, or I should say really, like, highly thought of awarded teams or whatever, but they just didn't work for me or I, maybe I didn't work for them either, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think finding that right mix of people is really where the magic is. Um, yeah. So culture, the best, when I say best agencies, the agencies that we felt that we're doing the, the best work at the time yeah. that we were lucky enough to be at, there's a pretty immediate correlation between that and the day-to-day culture and the feeling within the place. Yeah. I think at that point in time, regardless of what might have been going on outside of our creative department at Mojo, we felt protected and free to do great work. Yeah. And I know we felt the same way about that. We're a droger as well. So yeah. as a, um, I guess as a creative leader, as you wanted to call it, I think I didn't that's... want to call it that. I just couldn't <laughs> fucking think of anything to say. It's, are you are you guys middle aged entrepreneurs, <laughs> creative catalysts? Nathan is. He's Nathan a dis- is. He's a disruptor. He is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, on that actually, I mean, on the vivid on, on committee, the, aren't you? Yeah, South by. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, well, actually, on on entrepreneurialism, because we're we're quite curious about that at, at your end. I mean, I think beer for most men is a is a passion, and I think ultimately. 
um, it's one of the things that drove us to know that we were doing the right thing when we were setting out. Yeah, I felt that way about vibrators, yeah. Well, tell us a, bit, a little bit about that then. <laughs> <laughs> were they a passion of yours? Or? Um, no. That project happened in such an interesting kind of just serendipitous kind of moment where there was someone in the agency that was kind of had a brand up and was going, oh, but these guys are kind of cool. We should do something with them. I know someone who knows one of them. And and I was like, great, call them up. Let's have a meeting. Let's see if we can do something. And at that time, they had a like a sex toy brand that was in sex shops. And, and we had a meeting with them. We had some conversations with them. And then we were like, great, you know, so we'll we'll do a little project and kind of see how that goes. And in the end, really what we ended up doing was kind of giving them a brand that they didn't have. Uh, so we kind of conceived like a concept for a brand, a name for a brand, and then kind of really kind of how you do build brands. Like what's the tone of voice? The problem we were trying to solve was could you create a sex toy range or a range of vibrators that would never be sold in sex shops? And so that was kind of like, oh, okay, that's really interesting. They were more about sexual health than they were about you know, being naughty. And then when you did start to do research like you would over any project, you start to realize that sex toys were talked about in the same way like lawnmowers. They were like, you know, 95 kilowatt power thruster with a... And it was weird. It was like, you know, blokes had written them. You know, they they, they talk about them like they're kind of punishing tickling equipment or something. And so we were like, well, there's a real interesting opportunity there. And Pim, Justine, and, and myself, and, and I'm sure everybody that was kind of in the vicinity kind of started to play with this idea. And we took it back to them and they were like, well, holy shit, this is really special. We want to actually build. We want to start over. We want to start a brand based on this concept where we actually produce the product based on your ideas. And so that was great. And then because it was a side hustle and we were all just doing it kind of late at night, I was then like, okay, but you know, we need to do a different deal. And so IP law wasn't, wasn't my specialty, but we kind of struck up a deal with the guys because they couldn't pay us, you know? And so we were like, well, look, as long as you give us creative freedom, then we should sign into some kind of deal where we take a percentage of profit, right? And they agreed. And, you know, we still get checks every quarter now. So for those that don't know, it's the brand's called Smile Makers. And um, they're great because they're really beautifully designed vibrators. And the packaging is amazing. And they're different themes. There's the fireman, there's the tennis coach, there's the Frenchman, I think. Yeah, they were all based on these ideas that you get, that these little fantasies. And I, I don't have the copy in front of me, which is such a wonderful kind of part of it. And then really nice. I mean, the packaging has kind of evolved a little bit, but originally really kind of beautiful premium packaging, but still accessible, still friendly. Mm. And the tone of voice was very much built on the character trying to kind of seduce you a little bit. So I don't know. They're better than I made that sound. And look, we haven't made a huge amount of money off of it or anything, but in the end that didn't, that's not what really mattered. It was more going through it and learning and, you know, that taught me a lot about brand creation. Was that really interesting for you guys, like looking yeah, I mean, at it from that side? Look, if I could build a company that only did brand creation, I would do it. It was just a really rewarding process to go through that. And I think everybody should try to build a brand because at worst, you'll learn something. Yeah. Uh, and then, But it's also a great case study to be able to show your client. I've had to deal with distribution issues. I've had, you guys know this. 
more than I, because I, I, I think you guys have done such a great job with yours. Um, you know, we will do something like that mm-hmm. and hopefully more than one thing like that at 72. That's a, a great ambition to have, though, and just a really focused one as well. I just think it brings together, like, one of the things that I've found is as advertising got more complicated, this is especially true in the U.S., Things get very siloed at scale, right? And so you have brand people, you have, you know, marketing people, you have product people. It's all so separate. And sometimes the most significant effect you can have on a brand is at a, is at a point in the conversation that advertising agencies aren't actually involved. Uh, uh, you know, by the time you're talking about a marketing strategy and a comp plan, They've already made a hundred decisions that establish what that brand believes, what that brand feels like, smells like, tastes like, sounds like. And, uh, you know, those often happen with a bunch of different companies or maybe in some cases a, a good or bad design company has kind of led that process. And I think, you know, sometimes you can actually have a more rewarding kind of experience as long as your only interest isn't advertising. Mm-hmm. You know, if all you want to do is make ads, then maybe that's not exciting for you. But as someone who wants to make lots of things, that's super exciting, rich and valuable to a to a brand and to a client part of the relationship to be involved. And I had the, I used to have these conversations with clients at Lion Nathan where mostly at lunches, not in real meetings, you know, or 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 kind of a beer afterwards where I was like I would just like you to bring us a problem that you've got, not a brand that you want us to advertise. Just bring us a problem. <clears throat> like you know, you have 200,000 liters of wine that you can't get rid of that is unbranded. Mm-hmm. That's an incredible opportunity. Maybe we'll make salad dressings. And he was a good client that I liked. Um, he was like, I would never bring that to an advertising agency. And I was like, see, that's that's a shame, you know, because that's the kind of stuff. Mm, yeah. I think it's less about making ads. It's more about solving problems, solving problems with our creativity. And sometimes that manifests itself in advertising, other times in totally different things. And I think Good agencies, Droga knows that, Wyden knows that, even though they do make a lot of advertising too, uh, and, you know, lots of other companies. But that's also really important, I think, for an agency like, like 72 is. How, how are you going to get invited to sort of be exposed to those sorts of problems? Some of it's luck, to be honest. And then, you know, look, we're forming kind of less than obvious new business plans to be able to talk to people to get involved in projects like that. You know, we will eventually build uh, a design arm of our company. Uh, How we do that, when we do that, I'm not exactly sure, but we will. But I think if you know that you want to do it and you want to be involved, then you find it and you find a way. And if not, we'll create one of our own. Uh, And, you know, you just have to want to do those things. It's very serious. Yeah, very serious. I was just, I just sort of another serious topic. Um, the Photoshop war you've got with Cam Blackley. Who's winning? I'm fucking, I win. Mine mine are way better. I also found out the other day that he has been getting help. For those that haven't seen it, um, it's basically Micah and Cam photoshopping each other's face into precarious positions, I guess. Different, just anything they can get their hands on. Um, slightly weird and, really wrong um what's what's your favorite piece i don't know there are so many like i i when you look back because we we had one of these one of these little kind of battles a couple years ago 
I, I can't remember how it started. It just starts on something stupid. And it is still very stupid. It's hardly highbrow. Uh, <laughs> but my Photoshop skills are superior. And uh, and your ideas are probably better as well. No, his ideas are pretty good, actually, to be fair. Like, like I, I tend to just retouch him on the fat, naked people all the time. But um, oh, here's another thing I'll say. Him and I both have really messed up browser histories. Like we, cause you can get lost trying to find the images that the other has never seen. So like I remember at one stage and my wife walked over and was like, what are you looking at? And I was on a micro penis website. So it was like blokes with micro penises. I didn't even realize that was a thing, but you know, like it's basically like six foot five guys with like, you know, at the edge of a finger for a penis. But my favorite one was probably, it, there was one recently where it was just him, it was just him on a pickle. And that one was funny. I like that one. And then yeah, I think his, re his return with you as a cowboy on the floor. Yeah, that, that one was, was quite pretty. good. That yeah. was well, well He did done. one of his really early ones, like a gay Mexican prostitute with his pants halfway down and his belly out. And he retouched me onto that. Uh, cool. And he took a little bit more time with that one. So it looked, it looked, it looked quite good. <laughs> Um, he did some ones where he retouched me onto the mother of Honey Boo Boo, and that one was pretty funny. I'll tell you the other one was good. I'm not sure anybody wants to hear any of this, but uh, his face works so good on Rebel Wilson. So I would find like an entire series of like Rebel Wilson on tour because their skin colors match, and I didn't have to like... And then you were like, or it'd be like Rebel Wilson out for a walk and, or Rebel Wilson in a couple track suits. And he works really well on those. Where can you see all of these? On our Facebook feed, yeah. basically. That's where it. Campaign Brave tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> no, please, no. <laughs> but we, uh, we would just tag each other and, and, and that, you know, cause the thing about it is it's like your mates are on there, but so are your family. Like my kids saw some of them. They're like, what are you doing? Retouching of Cam's face on that, you know, wander around. That's just, you know, what mates do. I just wanted to ask you sort of one more thing. What would you say to young creatives these days, no matter whether you're in advertising or, or anything, just a creative industry, what advice would you, one piece of advice would you? would you give? I don't know that I have one thing that I could say that would be like meaningful. You know, I think about things that I've always said to people, you know, like you're your most important creative project. I don't mean that you should wear crazy clothes and things, but I think that like invest in your curiosity, you know, be interested mm -hmm. in stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's so important. Like, you know, travel, hang out with people that you don't know, see movies, see films, read books, you know, I, all of that stuff are the things that you draw upon in moments that you don't realize it. And you know, I think if you're unhappy, never stay anywhere if you stop learning. And I think maybe another thing that I've always felt, I don't think everybody says this, but I do, if I could switch names on books and, and nobody would know, I think that's sad. So I think like we, we often try and learn a way to do advertising and advertising schools teach us how to do ads and then we learn formulas and then we can't unlearn them or we'd so desperately see awards that we like and we want to make that kind of work. I think the most important part is that like your book should be yours. It doesn't mean you have a style. It doesn't mean you're like, you know, my stuff's all like this. It just means that, you know, when I look at a book, I want to see a unique mind mm. solving things in interesting ways. And if they don't always work or if, 
you know, they kind of wander off course. That's kind of okay, especially for young people. You know, I think the worst thing in the world is for people to learn a way to do advertising that's based on what's already happened. Like, there are things that you can learn and you should study and look at work to kind of, but I think it's just really important that it feels like you're thinking your kind of work. That's a really fantastic bit of advice, I reckon. We're out of questions. I've got one for you guys. What's What advice would you give somebody that was thinking about trying to start a brand? It's the same advice. And I would just say, I remember a point you said to us at one point was don't be advertising creatives, be creative thinkers. No matter whether you're trying to set up your own brand or or, or or be an advertising creative or an advertiser or any creative field, just be a creative thinker and that can come in any way. And it is what you said for me, what resonated was the, the, the problem-solving stuff. Someone said to me also once, I think it was Dave Johnson actually at, well, a long time ago, he said, for every unique problem, there's a unique solution. I think that's our job as creative people is just to, is to solve problems yeah. and do that in any way you can. Yeah, and beg for the hard ones. Don't look for the for the briefs that the great work's already been done on because they're the worst. I think that's good advice. But I think really unique problems are the times when we actually do really surprising stuff. Cool. Hey, Micah, it's been fantastic you coming in and chatting to the boys. It's been really, really... You told me before that this would definitely be the most shit one that you've done. <laughs> but but you do have to come back. It's, it is contractually a, a, an obligation. Uh, so have you got someone in mind? Who you think I could lie might? to you and say that I do, but I do yes. not. But I will. Yeah. I will. I'll, someone good. Excellent. Someone better than like me. Well, you've been fantastic. And Nathan and Dave, it's been a, a real privilege uh, chatting to you guys over the course of these couple of podcasts Thanks, and just mate. getting um, an idea of your story and your, your bravery, I reckon. Uh, and you've been a real inspiration, I know, to uh, the people who listen. So... Uh, well done, boys, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Thanks Paul. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you, Pleasure. Are you guys ready to start recording? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for downloading the Creative Relay podcast brought to you by Smith & Weston. Go to our website at thecreativerelay.com, made by our good friends at Macadamia Digital, where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests. I'll be back next time with Micah and his guest. Meanwhile, don't forget to subscribe, like and rate us. See you next time.